the best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What's up? Everybody, welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. We've got a really good one today. Um, hopefully, it's going to be a little bit long, um, so I hope I'll still have a little time for guys to take at the end. Uh, but also, this one kind of speaks for itself, so uh, it's, a, it's a really good one. And particularly since we have a lot of new listeners uh, more recently, this one will be a really good one to hit for all the skeptics out there. And it is uh, posted on... Uh, the uh, uh, LynnAlden.com, her investment strategy blog. We've read uh, one of her p- pieces recently. Um, I th- what was it? What was it called? The July Bitcoin article. Something. Okay, three reasons I'm investing in Bitcoin. So we read that on the show, and I'll have the link in the show notes if you want to uh, go back to that one. She basically talks about how and why she switched from bearish the last time she really looked into Bitcoin in 2017 to now very bullish um and uh now today or well okay yeah no it was updated today uh posted yesterday um she has a new post seven misconceptions about bitcoin and it's really good i, I read through it immediately um and uh, definitely definitely wanted to hit on the show real quick though let's uh thank hexa wallet for sponsoring this show and basically making this available to you guys so that i can do this very thing uh hexa wallet is a great mobile wallet non-custodial privacy preserving and uh batching multiple accounts there's just a lot of great things that you can do in this wallet that a lot of other wallets cannot do um and uh they are constantly adding and updating stuff so definitely a great one to check out if you are not yet holding your own keys or haven't really started into a mobile wallet. Check them out at hexawallet.io or just search Hexa, H-E-X-A, on Google Play or Apple App Store. All right, so let's go ahead and just jump right into the read now. Um, and uh, hopefully, like I said, we'll get a little bit of time afterward to talk about it. So again, this is by Lynn Alden, and it is titled, Seven Misconceptions About Bitcoin. I initially covered Bitcoin in an article in autumn 2017 and was neutral to mildly bearish for the intermediate term and took no position. The technology was well conceived, but I had concerns about euphoric sentiment and market dilution. I neither claimed that it had to go lower nor viewed it bullishly and merely stepped aside to keep watching. However, I turned bullish on Bitcoin in April of 2020 in my research service at about $6,900 per Bitcoin, and went long. It had indeed underperformed many other asset classes from autumn 2017 into spring 2020, but from that point, a variety of factors turned strongly in its favor. I then wrote a public article about it in July when it was at $9,200 a Bitcoin, further elaborating on why I am bullish on Bitcoin. That July article received a lot of press, and the CEO of MicroStrategy, the first publicly traded company on a major stock exchange to put part of its cash position into Bitcoin, stated that he sent that article, among other key resources, to his board of directors as part of his team education process. It's written with institutional readers in mind, in other words, in addition to retail investors. 
with a price tag of over $15,000 per Bitcoin today, actually $16,000, Bitcoin is up over 120% from the initial price at my April pivot point and is up over 60% from July. But I continue to be bullish through 2021. From there, I would expect a period of correction and consolidation, and I'll reassess its forward prospects from that point. Naturally, I've received many emails about Bitcoin over the summer and autumn. I've answered several of them via email, but figured I would summarize the most popular ones into a quick article on the subject. These are common misconceptions, risks, or questions, all of which make sense to ask, so I do my best here to address them as I see it. If you haven't read it, I recommend reading my July Bitcoin article first. Misconception number one. Bitcoin is a bubble. Many people view Bitcoin as a bubble, which is understandable, especially for folks that were looking at the linear chart in 2018 or 19. Bitcoin looked like it hit a silly peak in late 2017 after a parabolic rise that would never be touched again. This linear price chart goes from the beginning of 2016 to the beginning of 2019 and shows how it looked like a classic bubble. Maybe it is a bubble. We will see. However, it looks a lot more rational when you look at the long-term logarithmic chart, especially as it relates to Bitcoin's four-year halving cycle. Interruption real quick. So just the two charts posted here. Uh, first are the 2016, 17, 18 um, uh, years, and you basically just see the soaring price rise and then the collapse. Like uh, basically after the very end, uh, of 2017, beginning of 2018, it did nothing but fall for about nine or 10 months there. Um, and, you know, peaked at $20,000 and came down to three. And without assessing any of the longer term history of Bitcoin, these hype cycles absolutely just look like huge bubbles that have popped and have basically run their course. However, the second chart, which is actually uh, Plan B's chart, not actually showing the stock to flow ratio, but just showing the general trend of the log curve of this thing and shows how essentially we have gone through many of these uh, hype cycles uh, before that again all would appear to be bubbles but that they both coincide with the halving cycles and they seem to repeat the process to a new order of magnitude. Alright, let's get back into it. Each dot in that chart represents the monthly Bitcoin price with the color based on how many months it has been since the prior halving. A halving refers to a pre-programmed point on the blockchain every 210,000 blocks when the supply rate of new Bitcoins generated every 10 minutes gets cut in half, and they occurred at the times where the blue dots turned into red dots. The first cycle, the launch cycle, had a massive gain in percent terms from zero to over $20 per Bitcoin at its peak. The second cycle, from the peak price in cycle one to the peak price in cycle two, had an increase of over 50x, where Bitcoin first reached over $1,000. The third cycle, from peak to peak, had an increase of about 20x, where Bitcoin briefly touched about $20,000. Since May 2020, we've been in the fourth cycle, and we will see what happens over the next year. This is historically a very bullish phase for Bitcoin, as demand remains strong, 
but new supply is very limited, with a big chunk of the existing supply held in strong hands. The monthly chart is looking solid, with positive MACD and a higher current price than any monthly close in history. Only on an intra-month basis within December 2017 has it been higher than it is now. The weekly chart shows how many times it had become near-term overbought and how many corrections it had on its previous post-having bullish run where it went up by 20x. Another interruption here just to clarify uh, what she's digging into at this point. Um, first is that the highest monthly close was at $13,880. Uh, well, it depends on the chart on this one that she has here. It's $13,850. And obviously, when she was writing this article, it was at 15,000, and today it's already over 16. And again, this was on the monthly chart, and then she also has a weekly chart just below it, um, and uh, is just focusing on the RSI, the indicator for you know relative strength, um, which will you know indicate whether or not it's overbought or oversold. Um, and it just shows that how many times she just basically points out in circles how many times throughout. Uh, both the end of 2016 and all throughout 2017, it was just repeatedly overbought, 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 because it was just relentlessly making climbs and then correcting. All right, back to it. My job here is simply to find assets that are likely to do well over a lengthy period of time. For many of the questions and misconceptions discussed in this article, there are digital asset specialists that can answer them with more detail than I can. A downside of specialists, however, is that many of them, not all, tend to be perma-bulls on their chosen asset class. This is true with many specialist gold investors, specialist stock investors, specialist Bitcoin investors, and so forth. How many gold newsletters suggested that you might want to take profits in gold around its multi-year peak in 2011? How many Bitcoin personalities suggested that Bitcoin was probably overbought in late 2017 and due for a multi-year correction? I've had the pleasure of having conversations with some of the most knowledgeable Bitcoin specialists in the world, the ones that keep their outlooks measured and fact-based, with risks clearly indicated, rather than being constant promoters of their industry at any cost. Bitcoin's power comes in part from how enthusiastic its supporters are, but there is room for independent analysis on bullish potential and risk analysis as well. And as someone who isn't in the digital asset industry myself, but who has a background that blends engineering and finance that lends itself reasonably well to analyzing it, I approach Bitcoin like I approach any other asset class, with an acknowledgement of risks, rewards, bullish cycles, and bearish cycles. I continue to be bullish here. If this fourth cycle plays out anywhere remotely close to the past three cycles since inception, which isn't guaranteed, Bitcoin's relative strength index could become quite extreme again in 2021. Here's a chart from Plan B about Bitcoin's historical monthly RSI during the bullish and bearish phases of its four-year halving cycle. Just to explain this chart really fast, um, you just see these obvious uh, peaks and troughs in the RSI, the relative strength index of Bitcoin's price. And funny enough, the peaks are very similar. Um, so RSI just goes from 0 to 100. Right now they've just got this closed in from 40 to 100. And it shows that during the previous peaks in 2013 and 14, and then also in 2017, 
that over the course of the year it skyrocketed from in the 40s where it found its low all the way up to right around 95. And if you compare it to where we are today, we are very aligned with the 2012 and 2016 era just before a massive bull run started. All right, back to it. For that reason, Bitcoin going from 6,900 to 15,000 plus in seven months doesn't lead me to take profits yet. In other words, a monthly RSI of 70 doesn't cut it as overbought in Bitcoin terms, particularly this early after a halving event. I'll likely look into some rebalancing later in 2021 though. Each investor has their own risk tolerance, conviction, knowledge, and financial goals. A key way to manage Bitcoin's volatility is to manage your position size, rather than try to trade it too frequently. If Bitcoin's price volatility keeps you up at night, your position is probably too big. If you have an appropriately sized position, it's the type of asset to let run for a while, rather than to take profits as soon as it's slightly popular and doing well. When it's at, quote, extreme sentiment, and or its position has grown to a disproportionately large portion of your portfolio, it's likely time to consider rebalancing. Misconception number two. Bitcoin's intrinsic value is zero. I approached this topic heavily in my autumn 2017 article, and again in my summer 2020 article. To start with, digital assets can certainly have value. In simplistic terms, imagine a hypothetical online massive multiplayer game played by millions of people around the world. If there was a magical sword item introduced by the developer that was the strongest weapon in the game, and there were only a dozen of them released, and accounts that somehow got one could sell them to another account, you can bet that the price of that digital sword would be outrageous. Bitcoin's utility is that it allows people to store value outside of any currency system in something with provably scarce units, and to transport that value around the world. Its founder, Satoshi Nakamoto, solved the double spending problem and crafted a well-designed protocol that has scarce units that are tradable in a stateless and decentralized way. In terms of utility, try bringing $250,000 worth of gold through an international airport versus bringing $250,000 worth of bitcoins with you instead via a small digital wallet or via an app on your phone or even just by remembering a 12-word seed phrase. In addition, Bitcoin is more easily verifiable than gold, in terms of being a reserve asset and being used as collateral. It's more frictionless to transfer than gold, and has a hard-capped supply. And I like gold, too. I've been long it since 2018, and still am. Bitcoin is a digital commodity, as Satoshi envisioned it. Quote, as a thought experiment, imagine there was a base metal as scarce as gold, but with the following properties. Boring gray in color, not a good conductor of electricity, not particularly strong, but not ductile or easily malleable either, not useful for any practical or ornamental purpose, and one special magical property. It can be transported over a communications channel. If it somehow acquired any value at all for whatever reason, then anyone wanting to transfer wealth over a long distance could buy some, transmit it, and have the recipient sell it. Satoshi Nakamoto, 
August 2010. Compared to every other cryptocurrency, Bitcoin has by far the strongest network effect by an order of magnitude, and thus is the most secure in terms of decentralization and the amount of computing power and expense that it would take to try to attack the network. There are thousands of cryptocurrencies, but none of them have been able to rival Bitcoin in terms of market capitalization, decentralization, ubiquity, firm monetary policy, and network security combined. Some other tokens present novel privacy advancements, or smart contracts which can allow for all sorts of technological disruption on other industries, but none of them are a major challenge to Bitcoin in terms of being an emergent store of value. Some of them can work well alongside Bitcoin, but not in place of Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the best at what it does, and in a world of negative real rates within developed markets and a host of currency failures in emerging markets, what it does has utility. The important question, therefore, is how much utility. The pricing of that utility is best thought of in terms of the whole protocol, which is divided into 21 million bitcoins, each of which is divisible into 100 million sats, and combines the asset itself with the means of transmitting it and verifying it. The value of the protocol grows as more individuals and institutions use it to store and transmit and verify value, and can shrink if fewer folks use it. The total market capitalization of gold is estimated to be over $10 trillion. Could Bitcoin reach 10% of that? 25%? Half? Parity? I don't know. I'm focusing on one Bitcoin halving cycle at a time. A four-year outlook is enough for me, and I'll calibrate my analysis to what is happening as we go along. Misconception number three. Bitcoin isn't scalable. A common criticism of Bitcoin is that the number of transactions that the network can handle per 10 minutes is very low compared to, say, Visa data centers. This limits Bitcoin's ability to be used for everyday transactions such as to buy coffee. In fact, this played a key role in the 2017 hard fork between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash. Proponents of Bitcoin Cash wanted to increase the block size, which would allow the network to process more transactions per unit of time. However, with any payment protocol, there is a trade-off between security, decentralization, and speed. Which variables to maximize is a design choice. It's currently impossible to maximize all three. Visa, for example, maximizes speed to handle countless transactions per minute and has moderate security depending on how you measure it. To do this, it completely gives up on decentralization. It's a centralized payment system run by Visa. And it, of course, relies on the underlying currency, which itself is centralized government fiat currency. Bitcoin, on the other hand, maximizes security and decentralization at the cost of speed. By keeping the block size small, it makes it possible for people all over the world to run their own full nodes, which can be used to verify the entire blockchain. Widespread node distribution, over 10,000 nodes, helps ensure decentralization and continual verification of the blockchain. Bitcoin Cash potentially increases transaction throughput with bigger block sizes, but at the cost of lower security and less decentralization. 
In addition, it still doesn't come anywhere close to Visa in terms of transaction throughput, so it doesn't really maximize any variable. Basically, the dispute between Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash is whether Bitcoin should be both a settlement layer and a transaction layer, and thus not be perfect at either of those roles, or whether it should maximize itself as a settlement layer and allow other networks to build on top of it to optimize for transaction speed and throughput. The way to think about Bitcoin is that it is an ideal settlement layer. It combines a scarce currency or commodity with transmission and verification features, and has a huge amount of security backing it up from its high global hash rate. In fact, that's what makes Bitcoin versus Visa an inappropriate comparison. Visa is just a layer on top of deeper settlement layers, with merchant banks and other systems involved under the surface, whereas Bitcoin is foundational. The global banking system has extremely bad scaling when you go down to the foundation. Wire transfers, for example, generally take days to settle. You don't pay for everyday things with wire transfers for that reason. They're mainly for big or important transactions. However, the banking system builds additional layers of scalability onto those types of settlement layers. So we have things like paper checks, electronic checks, credit cards, PayPal, and so forth. Consumers can use these systems to perform a large number of smaller transactions, and the underlying banks settle with each other with more foundational, larger transactions less frequently. Each form of payment is a trade-off between speed and security. Banks and institutions settle with each other with the most secure layers, while consumers use the speedier layers for everyday commerce. Similarly, there are protocols like the Lightning Network or other smart contract concepts that are built on top of Bitcoin, which increase Bitcoin's scalability. Lightning can perform tons of quick transactions between counterparties and reconcile them with Bitcoin's blockchain in one batch transaction. This reduces the fees and bandwidth limitations per small transaction. I don't know, looking back years from now, which scaling systems will have one out. There's still a lot of development being done. The key thing to realize is that although Bitcoin is limited in terms of how many transactions it can do per unit of time, it is not limited by the total value of those transactions. The amount of value that Bitcoin can settle per unit of time is limitless, depending on its market cap and additional layers. In other words, suppose that the Bitcoin network is limited to 250 transactions per minute, which is low. Those transactions could average $100 or a million dollars, or any number. If they average $100 each, it means only $25,000 in transaction value is performed per minute. But if they average a million dollars each, it means $250 million in transaction value is performed per minute. If Bitcoin grows in use as a store of value, the transaction fees and inherent limitations prioritize the largest and most important transactions, the major settlement transactions. Additional layers built on top of Bitcoin can do an arbitrary number of transactions per minute and settle them with batches on the actual Bitcoin blockchain. This is similar to how consumer layers like Visa or PayPal can process an arbitrary number of transactions per minute, while the banks behind the scenes settle with larger transactions less frequently. 
The market has already spoken about which technology it thinks is best between Bitcoin and others like Bitcoin Cash. Ever since the 2017 hard fork, Bitcoin's market capitalization and hash rate and number of nodes have greatly outperformed Bitcoin Cash's. Watching this play out in 2017 was one of my initial risk assessments for the protocol. But three years later, that concern no longer exists. Misconception number four. Bitcoin wastes energy. The Bitcoin network currently uses as much energy as a small country. This naturally brings up environmental concerns, especially as it grows. Similarly, gold mining uses a ton of energy. For each gold coin, a ton of money, energy, and time went into exploration for deposits, developing a mine, and then processing countless tons of rock with heavy equipment to get a few grams of gold per ton. Then it has to be purified and minted into bars and coins and transported. It takes several tons of processed rock to get each one ounce gold coin and thousands of tons of processed rock for each good delivery gold bar. The amount of energy that goes into a small unit of gold is immense. In fact, that energy is what gives gold value and what made it internationally recognized as money for thousands of years. Gold is basically concentrated energy, concentrated work, as a dense store of value that does not erode with time. There's no limit to how many dollars, euros, or yen we can print, however. Banks multiply them all the time with a stroke of a keyboard. Likewise, industrial metals like iron are very common as well. We have no shortage of them. Gold, however, is very rare, and when found, it takes a ton of energy and time to get it into pure form. And then we have to spend more energy transporting, securing, and verifying it from time to time. However, the world does that anyway, because it derives value from it compared to the value that it had to put in to get it. Gold mining and refining requires energy, but in turn, central banks, institutions, investors, and consumers obtain a scarce store of value or jewelry or industrial applications from the rare metal. Similarly, Bitcoin takes a lot of energy but that's because it has so much computing power constantly securing its protocol compared to countless other cryptocurrencies that are easy to attack or insufficiently decentralized. Visa uses much less energy than Bitcoin, but it requires complete centralization and is built on top of an abundant fiat currency. Litecoin uses much less energy than Bitcoin as well, but it's easier for a well-capitalized group to attack. The question then becomes whether that energy associated with Bitcoin is put to good use. Does Bitcoin justify its energy usage? Does it add enough value? So far, the market says it does, and I agree. A decentralized digital monetary system, separate from any sovereign entity, with a rules-based monetary policy and inherent scarcity, gives people around the world a choice which some of them use to store value in and or use to transmit that value to others. Those of us in developed markets that haven't experienced rapid inflation for decades may not see the need for it, 
but countless people in emerging markets that have experienced many instances of severe inflation in their lifetimes tend to get the concept more quickly. Furthermore, a significant portion of the energy that Bitcoin uses could otherwise be wasted. Bitcoin miners seek out the absolute cheapest sources of electricity in the world, which usually means energy that was developed for one reason or another, but that doesn't currently have sufficient demand, and would therefore be wasted. Examples of this include overbuilt hydroelectric dams in certain regions of China, or stranded oil and gas wells in North America. Bitcoin mining equipment is mobile, and thus can be put near wherever the cheapest source of energy is to arbitrage it and give a purpose to that stranded energy production. Bitcoin mining converts the output from those cheap, stranded sources of energy into something that currently has monetary value. Misconception number five. Bitcoin is too volatile. Bitcoin is promoted as a store of value and medium of exchange, but it has a very volatile price history. This leads again, somewhat understandably, for investors to say it's not a good store of value or medium of exchange, and thus fails at the one thing that it's designed to do. And they're kind of right. Bitcoin isn't the asset that you put money into for an emergency fund, or for a down payment on a house that you're saving up for six months from now when you definitely need a certain amount of currency in a near-term time horizon, Bitcoin is not the asset of choice. This is because it's an emerging store of value, roughly 12 years old now, and thus carries with it a significant degree of growth and speculation. Its market capitalization is growing over time, taking some market share from other stores of value and growing into a meaningful asset class. We'll see if it continues to do so, or if it levels off somewhere and starts to stagnate. For Bitcoin's market cap to grow from 25 million to 250 million to 2.5 billion to 25 billion to today's value of over 250 billion, it requires volatility, especially upward volatility, which of course comes with associated downside volatility. As it grows larger, its volatility reduces over time. If Bitcoin becomes a $2.5 trillion asset class one day with more widespread holding, its volatility would likely be lower than it is now. Therefore, having a non-zero exposure to Bitcoin is basically a bet that Bitcoin's network effect and use case will continue to grow until it reaches some equilibrium where it has lower volatility and is more stable. For now, it has plenty of volatility, and it needs that volatility if it is to keep growing. Bitcoin's technological foundation as a decentralized store of value is well-designed and maintained. It has all of the parts it needs. It just needs to grow into what it can be, and we'll see if it does. It's like if someone identifies a new element and people begin discovering uses for that element, and it experiences a period of rapid growth and high price volatility until it has been around for sufficient time that it eventually settles into a normal volatility band. While Bitcoin remains volatile as it is, investors can mitigate the risk by having an appropriate position size. Misconception number six. Governments will ban Bitcoin. 
Another legitimate concern that folks have is that even if Bitcoin is successful, that will make governments ban it. Some governments already have. So this falls more in the risk category than a misconception. There is precedence for this. The United States made it illegal for Americans to own gold from 1933 to 1975, other than in small amounts for jewelry and collectibles. In the land of the free, there was a benign yellow metal that we could be sent to prison for owning coins and bars of simply because it was seen as a threat to the monetary system. This chart shows the interest rate of 10-year treasury yields in blue. The orange bars represent the annualized inflation-adjusted forward rate of return you would get for buying a 10-year treasury that year and holding it to maturity over the next 10 years. The green square shows the period of time where owning gold was illegal. There was a four-decade period from the 1930s to the 1970s where keeping money in the bank or in sovereign bonds did not keep up with inflation. In other words, the orange bars were net negative. Savers' purchasing power went down if they held these paper assets. This was due to two inflationary decades, one in the 1940s and one in the 1970s. There were some periods in the middle, like the 1950s where cash and bonds did okay, but over this whole four-decade period, they were a net loss to inflation-adjusted terms. It's not too shocking, therefore, that one of the release valves for investors was banned during that specific period. Gold did great over that time and held its purchasing power against currency debasement. The government considered it a matter of national security to prevent hoarding and basically force people into the paper assets that lost value or into more economic assets like stocks and real estate. This was back when the dollar was backed by gold, so the United States government wanted to own most of the gold and limit citizens' abilities to acquire gold. No such backing exists today for gold or Bitcoin, and thus there is less incentive to try to ban it. And the gold ban was hard to enforce. There were rather few prosecutions over gold ownership, even though the penalties on paper were severe. Bitcoin uses encryption, and thus is not really able to be confiscated other than through legal demand. However, governments can ban exchanges and make it illegal to own, which would drive out institutional money and put Bitcoin into the black market. Here's the problem. Bitcoin has over $250 billion in market capitalization. Two publicly traded companies on major exchanges, MicroStrategy and Square, already own it, as do a variety of public companies on other exchanges and OTC markets, plus private companies and investment funds. Big investors like Kathy Woods, Paul Tudor Jones, and Stanley Druckenmiller own it, as does at least one U.S. senator-elect. Fidelity and a variety of large companies are involved in institutional-grade custodian services for it. PayPal is getting involved. Federally regulated U.S. banks can now officially custody crypto assets. The IRS treats it like a commodity for tax purposes. That's a lot of mainstream momentum. It would be extremely difficult for major capital markets like the United States or Europe or Japan to ban it at this point. If in the years ahead Bitcoin's market capitalization reaches over $1 trillion, 
with more and more institutions holding exposure to it, it becomes harder and harder to ban. Bitcoin was already an unusual asset that grew into the semi-mainstream from the bottom up through retail adoption. Once the political donor class owns it as well, which they increasingly do, the game is basically over for banning it. Trying to ban it would be an attack on the balance sheets of corporations, funds, banks, and investors that own it, and would not be popular among millions of voters that own it. I think regulatory hostility is still a risk to watch out for while the market capitalization is sub $1 trillion, and the risk can be managed with an appropriate position size for your unique financial situation and goals. And number seven, where to buy Bitcoin. The most frequent question I get about Bitcoin is simply where to buy Bitcoins. Some people don't know how to start and other people are familiar with the popular places to buy but don't know which ones are ideal. There's no one answer. It depends on your goals with it and where you live in the world. The first question to ask is whether you are a trader or a saver. Do you want to establish a long-term Bitcoin position or buy some with a plan to sell it in a few months or maybe some of both? The second question to ask yourself is whether you want to self-custody it with private keys and a hardware wallet or multi-signature solution, which has an upfront learning curve but is ultimately more secure, or if you want to have someone else custody it for you, which is simpler but involves counterparty risk. Bitcoin is accessible through some publicly traded funds like the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC, of which I am long. However, funds like these trade at a premium to NAV and rely on counterparties. A fund like that can be useful as part of a diversified portfolio in an IRA due to tax advantages, but outside of that isn't the best way to establish a core position. Bitcoin is also available on major exchanges, where it can then be sent to a private hardware wallet or elsewhere. I don't have a strong view on which exchanges are the best, however be careful about platforms that don't let you withdraw your Bitcoin, like Robinhood. I personally bought my core position through an exchange in April when I turned bullish and transferred a lot of it to personal custody. From there I began dollar cost averaging through Swan Bitcoin, where it can be kept in their cold storage or transferred out to personal custody as well. Swan specializes in Bitcoin rather than multiple types of digital assets and has very low fees for folks that like to dollar cost average. It's a savers platform, in other words, rather than a traders platform. I'm an advisor to Swan Bitcoin and know several of their staff, including their CEO, so it is my preferred way to accumulate Bitcoin. I have a referral code as well. Folks that sign up at swanbitcoin.com Alden, that's A-L-D-E-N, get $10 in free Bitcoin if they start accumulating through the platform. Overall, having access to a crypto exchange and having access to a dollar cost averaging platform like Swan along with a personal custody solution like a hardware wallet or a multi-signature solution is a good combo. For folks that are early in the learning curve, keeping it on exchange or in custody storage is also fine. And as you learn more, you can choose to self-custody if it's right for your situation. All right, that closes out Lynn Alden's uh, really great piece about misconceptions on Bitcoin, seven misconceptions on Bitcoin, uh, which the seventh one wasn't really a misconception, but it's a very, very frequently asked question. And it's funny how often I realize that I don't quite have a good answer for that. 
or at least a, a very explicit place to point people. It's just kind of like you have the general knowledge of it because you've been in Bitcoin for so long. Um, and then somebody comes and asks you and you like, you know, go down this whole list of Swan Bitcoin, uh, Cash App, River Financial, Bull Bitcoin, uh, Coin Floor. You know, you go all through all the ones that you know of as trustworthy and stuff. Uh, but then you just kind of realize that like, you don't have anywhere to point somebody like you just have to hope that they remember you say that out loud like somebody might be trying to write this down right now it's like what were those what were those repeated again but i'm not going to do it i'm not going to do it i'm going to make you go to the show notes um and i will actually have those links in the show notes in fact i might just take this time because of this article uh just reminded me or got that back in my fresh in my brain i might actually just uh sit down and do like a quick uh write up that i can point people to of just like what I consider the most reliable um, or trustworthy places to buy Bitcoin uh, that do let you uh, withdraw. That's the thing about that. She, I'm glad she made the point in this piece. Um, stay away from places like Robinhood. And it looks like for now, PayPal and Venmo uh, that you can quote unquote buy and hold Bitcoin, but you cannot uh, withdraw it. However, PayPal may actually have. Um, uh, maybe on the verge of changing that. I don't know how this is, you know, how long out it's going to be, but I would just, I would just honestly just stay away from it. I, I'm a potent dislike of PayPal. I think that's about the surest way you can get funds locked up, in my opinion. That said, they did buy an actual custodian in the Bitcoin space. They purchased the whole company. Um, so it sounds like they're probably trying to make it happen, but they wanted to release it prior to that. But I'm not recommending it regardless. Now, there is some really great stuff. I'm not going to hit every single point that she goes on because I think there are uh, one or two that there's some really good things to add. But for the most part, most of the ones she hit, I don't really have much to say about other than, you know, bravo. She did a great job of kind of hitting the main points. I will hit on something of, of line in this article that she basically has one of the most succinct and thorough demolishings of Bitcoin cash uh, in this article. And we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, real quick, let's hit our sponsor, who I know you have never heard of, HexaWallet. What? Tell me about this wallet. I am so glad you asked. HexaWallet is one of the great mobile wallets out there for those of you that are ready to hold their own keys. It is non-custodial. It has a uh, seedless backup that actually splits it among multiple locations, both for redundancy and security, which is really cool. It has built-in, dirt, simple batching, so you can save on fees by sending tons of transactions all at once, which I love to do. I do it just for kicks. Uh, you can do multiple accounts with varied security. You got multi-sig and two-factor. You can add contacts with a secure communication channel. You don't have to give out any email or details with Hexa. It's just, just an overall feature-rich and handy mobile wallet. And Hexa, H-E-X-A, is all you got to remember. You can find them at hexawallet.io and also everywhere that you find apps. Check them out. And a thanks to those guys for supporting Bitcoin Audible. All right, so uh, some of the uh, misconceptions that she hits in this one. So first one, Bitcoin is a bubble. I don't think I really need to address that one. Um, we've talked about that enough on the show, and it's obvious if you look at a log chart, and she basically smashes that one. It's not a bubble. But the one that still gets me 
uh, to this day is the intrinsic value uh, argument, that it doesn't have any intrinsic value, which is such a difficult thing. It's amazing how obvious I think the argument is versus how much confusion there still seems to be around this idea. And I've kind of got to the point where I just don't like the word because it completely misses the mark on like the bulk of the value in the economy right now. So intrinsic, I guess, would typically say something that's useful in the physical world. Like that's generally what we allocate the idea of intrinsic value to, which is also completely meaningless because without the information and the knowledge of how to use the thing, it is useless. Like there are tools and materials and everything all around in the, you know, in, in the forest and in natural environments. And they're of no use to the animals because they don't have the knowledge or the, uh, or potentially the intelligence to actually make use of them. The knowledge, the information itself is the value in those supposed things that have intrinsic value, like gold. If we couldn't turn gold into little electronic connectors or jewelry or uh, mine it out of the ground, it would be of no worth to us. It isn't valuable just because it's tangible. It's valuable because what we can do with it. So again, I really hate the term to begin with um, because I think information itself is the only thing that is valuable. Oil isn't valuable in and of itself. For thousands of years, if you had oil spurting up out of the ground in your farm, your, your farm became worth nothing. It was just, it was the worst news that you could get. It just means that you now have to, all this life that you have invested into this farm is now completely worthless because you got oil coming up out of it and now you can't grow anything. You had to give it away to somebody. But then we discovered new information. We discovered a virtual thing, uh, a process on how to use that oil to do something else, and suddenly it's amazingly valuable. Suddenly it's one of the most valuable assets in the world. The information, the idea of how to use the thing, is what gave it value. It wasn't intrinsic to oil. Oil's a real pain in the butt if you don't know anything about it. So what in the virtual world, what in the digital world, has value? Does reliability have, quote-unquote, intrinsic value? Think about that. If you get something for cheap and you don't really know if it's going to work, you're pretty sure it is. You know, it's got a lot, decent, decent amount of reviews, but it also got a ton of one-star reviews. Um, uh, and you know there's a rough chance that you might have to replace it. But if you just paid twice the price, there's another thing that is built out of really good materials, has a million five-star reviews, and you knew almost, you know, like high assurances that the thing would last for decades, is it worth the 100% premium? Because you're paying for reliability here. You're explicitly paying for the assurance that this thing will do its job and you don't have to replace it. Obviously, I mean, I make the choice all the time that it's worth the price difference. Now, how many things exist that cannot easily be defined but also have tons of value you know things that are digital or virtual in nature lens example um uh which I, I actually love this example even though i think it has one major drawback of a super powerful and rare sword in a video game 
I think it's a really great one to show the concept, and it's really often used. But I think the problem with that analogy is that it trivializes the value that we are talking about. Like, that's the conception of value that I think most people have of Bitcoin, that it's just a digital point somewhere in a computer screen, uh, just like, you know, gold in World of Warcraft or a super rare digital sword. And uh, so if you can show that the rare digital sword has tons of value uh, to the people who use that network or play that game, well, then obviously Bitcoin could have value too. But I think Bitcoin's value is far deeper and more meaningful than that and that there's a lot of things that we can relate it to like so how much is an insurance contract worth how much do you pay for that doesn't really exist right like it's as virtual as it gets you just wrote some crap down on a piece of paper that supposedly means something in other people's heads it's a promise from other people that they'll do something in the future people pay tons for a contract like that what about a piece of software? Totally virtual. It, in every sense of the word, does not exist, quote-unquote, in the real world, intangible, etc. But could anybody with a thought in their head argue that software has no value? That Photoshop is completely pointless or useless? That Mac OS, Windows, and Linux have no value despite the fact that the entire world economy is essentially kept alive on top of them? What about TCPIP? What is the value of the network that allows us to exchange and spread this information right now? That allows me to read this article from Lynn Alden. I have no idea where she lives. I, I just not the slightest clue where any of this is coming from. I just go, I click on a thing and I read it and it's a great article and I'm like, oh snap, I'm going to read this on the show. And I start using this other software that I've purchased and I record it. And then I drop it into some other server. God knows where it is. I don't know where Anchor keeps their servers. And then thousands of people download it and listen to it so that they don't have to read the article. Most of that process I don't really pay for or I pay very, very little amounts for. What's that worth in, in a situation where, or a comparison to not having it? What about social networks? They connect billions of people around the world and spread information to vast groups in seconds or minutes. None of this is remotely tangible, but would we really say that there's no intrinsic value there? Maybe it doesn't have an explicit price, but anyone with a brain cell can see that as intangible as it is, these things combined are worth many trillions of dollars in value that literally could not exist in the world without them. Virtual things are extremely hard to define the edges of. Like information is typically something that can only indirectly obtain a price, like the idea of being able to use oil. The information of how to use oil is really hard to price in and of itself, but we can price the gasoline and the petroleum and the things that we can create with the oil, because that thing is physical and scarce in a real and easily defined way. This is very similar to code. What we can do with it uh, is something that we can value. We, we create it as a service, essentially. Um, uh, same thing with like secret information. We know that we could use that information. Like the information itself might not be explicitly defined and valuable, but what we may be able to use that information for, some opportunity or trade that we could 
take advantage of by being the only person who has that piece of information. That is valuable. Uh, that makes the information uh, valuable indirectly. What Bitcoin is, it is essentially a set of financial rules with unequaled reliability, something that not even a million five-star reviews can give because you can actually verify it yourself. Those reviews still rely on you trusting other people. It's a contract of ownership that you know you cannot be broken by the reliability that you get from the protocol itself. It's a network like TCPIP or Facebook built around exchanging and pricing that same incredible assurance, and it is quite possibly the most beaten-to-death, hardened software network in the world that can literally maintain those assurances as if national borders, regulations, capital controls, banking hours, and central bank money printers do not exist. And it has managed to wrap this system inside a set of 21 million perfectly defined scarce units which can be owned, programmed, exchanged, and verified by or with anyone anywhere in the world. If that isn't intrinsic value, then that term is completely garbage for determining what a thing is worth. Anyway, that's my thoughts on intrinsic value. Um, so, uh, uh, skip a couple of the elements. Uh, a doesn't scale. Um, this, is where, uh, this is where she just absolutely demolishes Bitcoin Cash, which just really, I, I actually had to record it twice because I kind of giggled um, <laughs> as we went through it the first time. Um, but uh, uh, earlier on in it, uh, she's got a quote, however, with any payment protocol, there is a trade-off between security decentralization and speed. And this is literally true of any technology we have for payments and like in the banking system. Like the banking system is built layer upon layer upon layer and layer. I mean, it just, it's, it's crazy if you actually want to look in and get the nit and gritty of it. Um, and which variables of those to maximize is a design choice. It is currently impossible to maximize all three. Um, you know, it's like that saying of fast, cheap and high quality pick two that's kind of the trade-off we have uh with this decentralized system and the thing is the is the dis decentralized high security side of bitcoin is the thing that we don't have anywhere else that's the thing that's novel so obviously that is what you prioritize because if you prioritize payments and give those two things up well then you just get apple pay then you just get paypal then you get the thing that we have a thousand different ways with a thousand different brand names and is of no major consequence on the global sphere. But this quote um, so she does like a brief examination of Bitcoin Cash and like that history and stuff. And then she just she says, quote, Bitcoin Cash potentially increases transaction throughput with bigger block sizes, but at the cost of lower security and less decentralization. In addition, it still doesn't come anywhere close to Visa in terms of transaction throughput. So it doesn't really maximize any variable. That one just had me. I was like, that, that, I mean, that, that's it. Is that the supposed bigger blocks that I can do three times Bitcoin transactions uh, or Bitcoin's transaction throughput um, at the you know, relatively severe cost of decentralization and the, the requirement that you have to break consensus and kill the Lindy effect of Bitcoin 
like I said in um, one of my own articles, I think it was how many forks does it take to get to Satoshi's vision? Um, I basically said that 20 megabyte blocks, 50 megabyte blocks, a gigabyte per block is literally not a drop in the ocean of the transaction scaling problem. Visa makes all of those look stupid. And gigabyte blocks, I promise you, one node, two node, tops. It is a central, it is, it might as well be in the Visa data center, which just means it's going to be slower and cost a crap more computation. And then they have to mine it when Visa already doesn't have to do those things and keeps up pretty well uh, who owns what and where transactions are supposed to go and does so uh, at a far greater rate. Why would they use something that's slower, crappier, cost way more resources? They're still going to be running completely by themselves and gives no one any additional assurances. You know, the, the decentralized network of nodes is what grants those assurances. That's why they are there. The miners mining on this in an open way all across the globe. These things are what build the assurances of Bitcoin and the fact that no... Uh, none of these entities have direct or any sort of centralized control over it. Now, it's funny, she actually mentions, you know, over 10,000 nodes, um, but it's actually closer to 40,000, which sucks because it's actually continued to fall. It was like 90,000, like a handful of years ago. But you can see that actually at uh, Luke Dasher has the, the node count thing. And what it's able to do is rather than, there's a difference between two different types of full nodes. There's a listening full node, which will basically um uh respond to any and all requests on the bitcoin network for blocks and transactions and all these other things to everybody else running software on the network whereas a non-listening node is essentially for um uh personal use it's securing their coins and their stuff but uh they're you know maybe it's behind a network where the ports are closed so it can't receive input it can't receive requests from other nodes on the network but that is still, in my opinion, a uh, full validating node that is defending somebody's uh, coins, that is defending capital on the network. And I think that's the key indicator. Um, and, th and that's why I count those as, as like 39,000-ish, 40,000-ish uh, right now. And I consider those the full nodes of the Bitcoin network. But further on that point, though, is that um, like Lightning Network, I don't know how to, like, I could say it a thousand different ways, but anybody who's a skeptic is just not going to listen. Um, but I guess all I can say about Lightning Network is that I use it multiple times a day now, like all the time. Uh, and now, now even more so. I don't even know how many times I'm doing transactions and stuff on uh, Sphinx uh, chat app, which I'm using now. I've just, you know, added it to my dock on the iPhone. So I'm, I'm literally using it constantly. Um, and I don't even know how many, I mean, their tra transactions in that thing are, I mean, every time I listen to a podcast, it's a transaction every minute. Like I'm, I'm paying for, uh, the episode that I'm listening to, I'm streaming money. So we're getting to a point where even me counting the number of lightning transactions I'm doing is just kind of dumb. So we're probably talking hundreds or thousands of transactions at this point, uh, on top of the fact that I still just use it for fold and strike like it is how i send money out of my bank account now with strike and i only have to do a bitcoin transaction i don't know uh i mean i just did one a, a handful of them yesterday because the mempool got low uh, so i started closing and opening channels that i needed 
But for the vast majority of the time, I don't do Bitcoin transactions. I don't have to. My savings is savings, and all of my spending both comes in and goes out as lightning. If that's not scaling, I don't know, I don't know what you think scaling is. Like, I'm doing thousands of transactions in Bitcoin that are 100% secured by the Bitcoin network and that I could uh, settle to Bitcoin anytime that I wanted with permission from no one. I have absolute proof that these coins are mine and that they exist and are completely validated by the Bitcoin chain. Uh, in fact, the longer I use it, the more secure and more, uh, the greater the assurance that I have. And transaction costs are tiny. It did nothing. Um, I think my big transaction costs are like 39 sats, um, which is like, I don't know, what is it, a third of a penny? Something like that. So yeah, there's scaling. Then uh, probably the only other thing to point out um, is that, you know, governments are going to ban Bitcoin. Um, and uh, one of the interesting things that I've been, I've talked a couple, talked with a couple of people about um, recently and has come up quite a bit is that one of the major issues uh, to um, the confiscation and the outlawing of gold, of holding gold bullion uh, within the United States was the fact that they were on, that the U.S. was on a gold standard is that they needed to be able to get, they needed to have ownership of the gold within their country because if the users or if the, the citizens hoarded the gold, then it basically was threatening the currency because they didn't have any gold backing it, so they had to confiscate it. And of course, as she shows in her little chart, is that this is because you know, they're not able to keep, up, keep treasuries up with, um, with inflation. Now, this is actually a really interesting point that, you know, Bitcoin and gold do not have this problem anymore. And it's after we went off the gold standard that gold became free to use as citizens again, because now they don't have this concern. They don't have to back it with anything so they can give the illusion of freedom while still essentially confiscating value from everybody who's forced to use the dollar. It's essentially a way to make the lack of freedom feel softer and harder to identify. And as she points out, is that the gold ban was also really hard to enforce. They just had to basically go after centralized in, uh, institutions, and that there were very few actual prosecutions over gold ownership. Um, and you know, basically, you have to legally go after people to do this. So you end up in a very whack-a-mole situation. And with something like Bit, uh, Bitcoin built on a BitTorrent-like protocol, and based on encryption and something that doesn't exist in the physical world, um, it does make it really, really hard to confiscate. Like, you basically have to... There's no blanket way to do that. Um, they, they have to go after people legally, which is basically the slowest and messiest way to try to go after people. You know, if the gold was kept in banks... Well, then they just go after the banks, right? They just, they just call up all the banks and they're like, hey guys, we need this gold. Um, and that's how they confiscate it. Because very few people are hoarding gold in their own houses, they basically you know, took 90% of the market in a, just one swipe of the pin and they're good to go. Uh, but the fact that people, tons of people, custody Bitcoin themselves, you end up in a far more whack-a-mole situation 
uh, very much like BitTorrent. It's just impossible to go after everyone all at once. And this, of course, is why we tell everyone to hold their own keys, is because the more keys that are securing separate balances of Bitcoin, the more secure the entire network as a whole is, and the more secure that the, the essentially the monetary policy is, because or the monetary decentralization is, because there is no one custodian of the value of the network. But the big thing is that they really are kind of, you know, losing their opportunity. Like, she's right. I really think this risk is getting less and less with time. Um, I think it was not Paul Tudor Jones. Oh, Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio just made a comment, um, and it was shared out on Twitter, about how uh, he thought governments would try to ban it, but that only when it became, like, material, like it became valuable enough to do something about it. Um, and he said that I don't think that would happen po uh, pre $100,000 of Bitcoin. But the number of people, the number of institutions, the number of financial institutions, the number of retail investors, the number of individuals, uh, you know, family trust funds, like the number of things that have to come on board from here to start talking about $100,000 of Bitcoin along with the potential consequences, the, the potential political atmosphere that would lead to such a driver in that, which I think is our current political atmosphere, I think outlawing it at that point is going to be insanely difficult. You know, that's not... Like, look at the problems they've had with backlash over just telling people to put a piece of cloth over their face and then compare that to saying, I'm going to take all of your savings. That, that everything that you think you just made in the last six months and all of this value that you think you have invested and that you have protected from our treasury money printing shitstorm nightmare, uh, we're just going to take it from you. Yeah, I don't think that's going to go over very easy. Obviously, the, I think the real risk is regulatory. Not straight out, we're banning it but that it becomes so difficult to use, it's specially taxed, um, that miners in the country can't process these certain transactions. You've got blacklists. Um, uh, if you don't explicitly say where it came from, no business can legally accept it. I mean, just all of those things. That, that is where I think the risk comes from. But I don't think it's going to be a risk in you are illegal because you own it. I think it will all be around control, uh, a, a KYC sort of, you don't get any privacy in this, and anytime that you do anything with it, here's the fee that we're going to slap on top of it so that you can keep funding the war machine. So it'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds, but again, that's why you should hold your own keys, and that's why you should also auto DCA. I love that she is an advisor. I'm also an advisor to Swan Bitcoin, uh, FYI. That's not really the reason I push them. Um, I just, uh, I, I, you know, I, I stack every week. Um, so I, I push the services that I use. And Swan Bitcoin is one that I am definitely using. And or, I, I don't know if I should say this, um, but, uh, well, I'm going to say it anyway. Because uh, I know it's like right on the horizon. But one-time buys are dropping. Uh, they are, they're beta testing right now. And I'm going to get to play with it. And I get the same low fees. I'm super stoked. Uh, so if you're not uh, stacking with Swan yet, 
Um, you've got two options for ref links that'll get you $10 free. Uh, swanbitcoin.com slash guy or swanbitcoin.com slash Alden, A-L-D-E-N. Support either the uh, wonderful article of, the, or, excuse me, wonderful author of this article uh, or, of course, the wonderful voice that read it to you. I will leave that up to you. And, of course, a final shout-out to Hexa Wallet for uh, supporting Bitcoin Audible and for their cool-ass wallet. But let's close this out for the day. Uh, the dogs are all looking at me like I'm crazy for not having fed them yet. Um, and uh, uh, I will catch you guys next time. Thank you so much for listening to Bitcoin Audible. And don't believe all the misconceptions about Bitcoin. All the answers are out there, guys. All the answers are out there. And uh, you know, share this out with everybody you know in the Bitcoin space. Oh, and if you wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the energy one, uh, I will have a link in the show notes one of my favorite articles on this that I just read recently, uh, The Last Word on Bitcoin's Energy Consumption. Uh, check that one out. And if you want to join the tribe, if you want to go to the Sphinx app and hang out with the crew, it's amazing. People are just popping in there like crazy. Um, and if you haven't played around with Lightning, you are missing out. This is straight the future, guys. I'm absolutely loving it. So check it out on sphinx.chat. Uh, and you can find the tribes, tribes.sphinx.chat. Um, uh, I'll have the link in the show notes so you can check it out. But you can find me in the tribes. We are the Bitcoin audio knots. So don't miss out. Come play with Lightning. Come hang out in the crew and, uh, and listen to the show. It's also got the podcasting built right in. So you can listen to the show and play Lightning all at the same time. It's literally killer. So I'll see you up there. And thank you for listening to Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, take it easy, guys. Misconception number two. Bitcoin's intrinsic value is zero.